Welcome to Polite Politics, No Niederhofer. I'm Jenny Terre. And uh, this is Polite Politics, where we talk about news of the day, but in a polite way. It's very politics, polite. Politics, but polite. <laughs> uh, so one of the big stories that is going on, obviously, and we'll continue to give you updates as it goes on, is the coronavirus. Jenny, we had uh, one of our first casualties outside of Asia. There was a tourist uh, from Hubei province. Uh, who passed away was an 80-year-old, and we know that this deals with respiratory stuff, makes it very hard to breathe, 80-year-old in France, the first death outside of Asia. And we also found out that um, there are Americans on a cruise ship that are going to be allowed to come home, but they're going to be quarantined for two weeks. You know, what are the big kind of updates beyond that in the coronavirus situation as it it continues here? So last time I checked, which was about... uh 30 minutes ago, okay, so it's uh, Sunday morning. Um, there are over 68,000 confirmed cases across the globe, um, and this is according to the Johns Hopkins Live Tracker, which I suggest people uh, tune into because it's extremely accurate, um, and they're uh, very on top of updating it. So I would, I would advise people to look at that. Um, currently, there's 15 cases in the U.S., um, according to the CDC. And total around the globe, it's estimated that uh, over 1,600 people have died, um, which is very sad. Um, It's also making health officials look towards what a pandemic situation would look like, um, which it seems like we're heading in that direction. I know a couple of countries are focused on creating a vaccine, which I'm very uh, happy about, and I know a lot of people are. Um, So... We'll see, but it seems like it's a very fast-spreading uh, infection or, sorry, virus. Um, China reported in 24 hours, this was uh, on Sunday, 2,000 new cases um, and 142 deaths. That was in 24 hours. So the that 24-hour period that you mentioned earlier this week where there was just an explosion in new cases reported and also deaths as well it was said that that was due to a new methodology Mm -hmm. basically you know changing the the way that they count uh, who has the disease and that really made the numbers jump and also i think gave a lot of people because it looked like maybe it was slowing down maybe they had a little bit more control of it but we've seen that this is not going away anytime soon, and the Chinese government, uh, the Communist Party, has made some changes to the officials uh, that are operating there in Wuhan and elsewhere in order to try to crack down on what's happening, things that they're saying, this is not moving as fast as they want, it's not moving as efficiently as they want. Do you think, Jenny, and obviously the we've, we've discussed this a little bit, the... 2020 games in Tokyo, the IOC right. and Japanese officials are basically saying that the games are going to continue as planned. Obviously, we don't have any additional information before that. We know with Brazil, there was the Zika uh, scare, and a lot of people were getting infected, but the games obviously went on, and, and nothing kind of crazy happened afterwards sure. as far as the illness. But what do you think Japan can do, if anything, to try to calm people's fears about hosting the 2020 games well uh you're asking someone who was in japan earlier this year and i saw firsthand how extremely vigilant they were with 
um, sanitization. So from what I saw firsthand, I think that they are very well prepared for a pandemic. I think they are constantly ahead of the game when it comes to that from what I saw. Is that because they're so densely populated there in Tokyo? It's possible. It's possible. But I'm sure you've seen, you know, images, people wear masks. Um, They're very conscious of clean air. Um, But, you know, in general, I mean, if there was something that was like on the street, something that needed to be cleaned up, it was addressed right then and there. And it was almost like it was a public health hazard every time. It was crazy. And it was so clean. Um, in Japan. So knowing that, I think they're going to be pretty on top of the situation. Um, How they can, you know, continue to do that or even increase their efforts, I think it would just be um, more of spreading information to people. I'm sure there's some kind of mass, you know, messaging system they have when it comes to the Olympics. So if they can just keep signs around telling people to wash their hands and you know, preventative procedures are probably best. At this point, there's still so much that we don't know about the disease. Obviously, we have a name for it, COVID-19. But at the same time, it's critically important that we have less stigma, less fear, because if there's so much fear and stigma, I feel like people won't go to the doctor if they think that they might be sick. That's right. And I know it's very scary, especially in China, because I know people in China right now and they have you know a couple days where they're able to leave the house Um, they're pretty much on lockdown Uh, I know even at one point I saw I think it was a video on Twitter or a picture where they were boarding up people's doors to where they couldn't even leave if they wanted to that's really scary Um, but I, I think China changing their methods like you said Hopefully that helps. It's a little scary how quickly the number jumped once they changed their method. I'm I'm a little bit um, uh, I'm afraid of that, and I think we should all be uh, very on top of of their numbers. But I think this is predictable. No, I I think if if you're in the position of the Chinese, I can understand why they were undercounting, and it's the wrong thing to do. Right, But in order to try to have less panic, in order to try to keep more control, which is exactly what the Chinese government is about, control, in order to do that, they decide that they're going to undercount. And now when they say, okay, well, we're going to change the way we were counting because somebody was probably either going to come in there, either an outside health organization, and say the Chinese government is undercounting. So I think this just confirms the suspicions that a lot of news organizations and and health organizations had was that China was kind of fudging the numbers now. And Mm -hmm. hopefully with this new methodology, we'll have a better understanding of just how many people are impacted and what, if anything, we need to do in order to try to corral or contain the outbreak right now. But truly, as you said, hopefully it does not turn into a pandemic. We move on now from the coronavirus to the New Hampshire primary. We're going to recap that for you and then do a slight look ahead here to Nevada. Uh, New Hampshire primary, Jenny, Bernie Sanders, and Mayor Pete, again, doing quite well. That's right. Bernie Sanders is doing really well. Um, So I think that, um, you know, he and Mayor Pete are really pushing Biden down in the ranks here. 
I think for a while I thought Biden was going to be the nominee, but now not so much. So there's a lot of different things I, I want to kind of get into here with the New Hampshire primary, because I think there are a few really interesting insights that we can glean. Obviously, only two contests in the books, Iowa and New Hampshire. We have a couple more contests, the Nevada caucus, just like Iowa, it's a caucus system, and South Carolina, which is a primary just like New Hampshire. But And then we have Super Tuesday, where a whole lot of states vote. And then that's going to be the really big deciding factor. That's going to be super. We're going to have a much better sense of where the primary stands after Super Tuesday. But going back to New Hampshire, I think there are a few different things to get into. I want to start with, as you said, Joe Biden. So Joe Biden was the presumptive front runner for much of this race. And now South Carolina is set up as a 100% must win race for him. In your opinion, why do you think he's fallen back? from presumptive frontrunner status. What is going on here that has allowed him to slide this far back into the primary? I don't think he's going out to these communities as much as these other candidates are, to be honest. I, I think I, I actually know a couple of local reporters in South Carolina, for example, and I saw a couple of his staffers, I believe, that were video conferencing in um, to different communities there, but I I don't think he's actually going out there, um, which is a huge mistake on his part. Um, and, and I've seen uh, Bernie Sanders going out to these communities every day almost. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the real reason here. Um, but I think that contributes a lot to his uh, falling down in the polls here. It's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if whether it's message. I don't know whether it's that. I, I, certainly a lot of the things that have been reported that I've looked at have said that it's his digital operation and his grassroots are not as strong and not as up to date as they need to be to compete in this primary. He kind of seems maybe stuck in a maybe 2012, 2016 frame of mind and hasn't really updated that ground game as much and the other candidates are, are lapping him that's from what i've been reading now we look at that so obviously for biden he really needs south carolina if he doesn't win south carolina and and perhaps doesn't win south carolina convincingly i think at that point you could probably stick a fork in him he's toast that is my that is my opinion because this is now set up to be south carolina's his last stand and obviously he can, if he wins South Carolina, that can turn things around for him on Super Tuesday. If he loses South Carolina, where he has more than 200 different endorsements from politicians there and leaders in that community, and obviously the African-American community is such a huge part of that primary, I think that would be absolutely devastating and could kick him out of the race very early on. So Joe Biden being true to Joe Biden, just as Jeb Bush being true to Jeb Bush has not worked out for those candidates, who I still right. believe are very authentic to who they were. But in a way that Jeb, who was also a presumptive frontrunner at the beginning of the race, has not really resonated with voters. Also, interestingly, South Carolina was Jeb's big need to win this state and then didn't. So I think that's actually an interesting corollary that I hadn't really thought about, or at least in, in comparison to those two people with Jeb and and Joe Biden and right. their proximity and closeness with former presidents. It's kind of an interesting thing to look at now that I now that I've stopped to think about it. Yeah. But going back to Bernie has done very well here. 
both in Iowa and in New Hampshire. What do you think Bernie has done, because he is now the front runner in this race, what do you think he has done incredibly well that has gotten him these these victories here in these first two primaries and positioned him really well to carry it on? I have to be honest, I think his overall messaging is extremely smart and his policies resonate with young voters. And I recently graduated from college um, a couple years ago. Um, I understand a lot of these people. You graduate college, you have massive debt. Um, you hear someone like Bernie Sanders talking and you are saying this is a sweet deal. So I think that's a big group for him. And I think um, he knows how to appeal to that. Like you said, uh, Joe Biden is falling behind with his digital um campaign and i think that's something bernie sanders does really well i think you're definitely right that energy that he's tapped into with young voters and young voters come out and vote in primaries and that's exactly what they've done so far iowa which again that was an absolute mess and now new hampshire and so now we've got nevada coming up we'll do our quick look ahead here to nevada so nevada has a very diverse electorate and a larger electorate than like a New Hampshire, but also a very, very diverse electorate. What do you see as the keys when the debate take place? What do you think those voters are looking for? I think they're looking for what you just described from Bernie, which is someone really dynamic who's out there talking to voters, um, who's appealing to a wide range of voters um, and is, you know, using, using, excuse me, targeted campaign ads for voters, you know, that's also very key, is making sure that certain voters receive certain certain ads targeted towards them. And, and I think uh, I've seen a lot of Bernie Sanders, you know, looking for um, Jewish b- voters to support him. That's something I see. And as a Jewish person, I'm like, oh, that's pretty smart of him. Like, I'm sitting right here. He knows. Um, also kind of weird. I'm like, <laughs> how did I see that? Um, but, you know, I, I, I think um, it's going to take that as well. Definitely will update y'all on what happens in Nevada this coming week, but want to move ahead to Attorney General Barr and the Department of Justice. There was some controversy there this week. Jenny, why don't you break down what happened? So this week we had um, Attorney General William Barr go on ABC News um, speaking with a reporter, Pierre Thomas, um, and he spoke about um, one big case being Roger Stone, um, who was the president's political advisor. And um, he basically went on ABC News, told this reporter um, that the president has never asked him to do anything in a criminal case, which um, a lot of a lot of politicians were suggesting um, that he was, you know, um, Certainly with his tweets, he was at least commenting on criminal investigations. We can certainly agree on on that much. And that seems inappropriate, I believe, for a president to do. Obviously, Department of Justice, he, you know, runs it. Um, The Attorney General, uh, William Barr, he said that he wouldn't be bullied, which which I thought was a great mention of independence from justice also i think and and sometimes this gets lost and one of the things from from working on steel and Unger, we we kind of repeated this time and time and time again the attorney general is not the president's attorney 
He is our attorney. He is the attorney of the United States, basically the lead attorney for the people of the United States, and is not the president's personal attorney general. Now, I know some people listening might say, well, that seems a little bit unfair because Barr and the president have worked together very closely on some of the things that have been very controversial in the past, the Mueller report being one of them, definitely. But in this case, definitely, you know, a a huge round of applause for for Barr in saying he won't be bullied. He said himself that he had some doubts about that sentencing report before this all came about and made him look very, very bad when they decided to to relook in the sentencing. And, and he said, I believe, was was the quote, you're making it impossible for me to do my job. In right. This instance, he he yeah. said that he said that of 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 tweeting. Um, he, he said the president's tweets uh, make it impossible for him to do his job. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for clarifying that. And so Jenny Roger Stone's criticism and asking for a new trial seems to do with the maybe the politics and the social media postings of the four women on the jury. Do you think he's going to have any success trying to get a new trial? Because it seems like the evidence is pretty damning. But you have uh, something you wanted to say. I mean, looking at the social media postings from this woman, do you think he's got any shot here? Looking at her social media posts of uh, Tamika Hart, it, it seems like she was very active on her Twitter, speaking out against the president, um, and you know, celebrating Stone's conviction in November 2019. That's a little disheartening. And um, I nice, I, nice I, pun there, obviously with Tamika Hart, but uh, <laughs> but it's it's interesting that you say that. Because she is the forewoman, that's that's more or less the person you know leading the jury. But there still are other jurors, and they did convict him. And it was justice that decided on this sentencing. So you know, for this entire trial, it seems like the evidence. As I said before, I, w- I was reading a National Review piece, and obviously, National Review, a very conservative publication, and and many phenomenal legal experts there they are all saying nope he did what he was accused of it was in writing they got him but the sentencing itself the punishment may have not fit the crime they were saying for somebody who has no evidence of violent crime in his past and for a person of this advanced age so that's exactly right and when you think about the handling of um you know the initial opening of this investigation when the FBI completely raided his home in the early morning hours, not to mention someone tipped off CNN um, to report on that. But the handling from the start of this case um, has been very alarming. While you bring up some, some good points about the way that this case was handled, the evidence was there. They procured it in a way where the evidence was admitted The trial went on. He was allowed a defense. He got his defense. The jury of his peers found him guilty of the crimes that he was accused of. So now it's really, I think, what we're talking about is the sentencing and President Trump's involvement and and, and Attorney General Barr saying, let me do my job running justice. And I think at the end of the day, what we want is the Attorney General running justice without interference or pressure because obviously there there is – going to be some kind of measure with political appointees and different things from the president as it regards to justice but at the same time 
the president should not pressure the attorney general and members of the Justice Department. They should be independent in what they do in their work. I want to move on to our, our last kind of thing of the day. We try to bring up usually something that is a little bit uplifting in every time. Last time we talked about was the Oscars, Bong Joon-ho and Parasite, the director of Parasite and the movie obviously doing incredibly well. 1917 doing very well as well. I was very, very happy to see that. The story that I had, Kobe Bryant, obviously tragic passing of him uh, and uh, his 13-year-old daughter, Gigi, Gianna Bryant, and seven others in a helicopter crash in California. Kobe Bryant, this is All-Star Weekend in basketball. The All-Star Game is tonight. Uh, We found out from Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, that they will be renaming the All-Star Game MVP award after Kobe Bryant. He he won a record four All-Star Game MVPs, so they will be renaming that award in his honor. And in addition, he was also named a Hall of Fame finalist. Uh, That was announced. The finalists were announced um, this weekend for All-Star Game Weekend in Chicago. But the the people that will be making it to the, the Hall of Fame will be announced during Final Four weekend in, uh, in April. So uh, Kobe Bryant is one of those finalists along with Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan, basically three legends of the game. Uh, those three are basically assured, I would say, of making it in to the Hall of Fame as, as well as some others. Uh, Eddie Sutton is one of the finalists that is up, as well as Tamika Catchings, a WNBA legend. So pretty pretty cool Yay, for women. Kobe Bryant. Yeah, there, there are certainly a lot of, of great names in that Hall of Fame finalist class, but for Kobe Bryant to be in there, especially with everything that's happened, and to have the All-Star Game MVP award named in his honor, I think was, was such a great move. Is his wife going to be there, Vanessa? Uh, so I'm, I'm sure she is there. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what involvement, if anything, she'll have or whether she'll accept the what I we know to be that he is going to get into the Hall of Fame. I don't know whether she will give the speech. My guess is that's probably what will happen. Wow. And that's going to be an incredibly, incredibly emotional. She is so strong. I just have to say I've been following her social media posts, and, and she's been so real and raw with, with the pain she's going through. Um, and, and I think that... Um, that is just we all have our you know arms wrapped around her and she's incredible and and i hope that we can just continue to lift her up absolutely uh so that brings us here to the end of another wonderful polite politics podcast jenny any final thoughts on the week that we just experienced and the week to come I am excited for these uh, upcoming elections that we're going to have. We'll see what happens. Um, Also looking at the upcoming DNC debates. We'll see who qualifies from those. Definitely right, Jenny. We have the debate earlier in the week and then the caucus on Saturday. We will definitely make sure to keep you updated on that. A little final thoughts from me. Definitely hope everyone uh, who is a basketball fan enjoys the All-Star Game tonight. Should be a great one. And, of course, hope you all have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time. No Nieder Hoffer. Jenny Terre. And we will see you next time on Polite Politics. Mm-hmm.